I'm Isaac Fitzgerald, he is Saeed Jones, and you are watching AM to DM. Hello, hello, hello. Okay, friends, Isaac and I went to Miami for a conference. We left you for a smooth 48 hours mm -hmm. and... Nothing happened. <laughs> Not a thing. It's been super chill. That's what real chill back, we did. I got back on the timeline. I was like, ooh, everything's so chill. Shook. Yeah. Shook. The opposite. Ah, so much news. I've really been struggling to try to navigate, like, not reading the news constantly, but y'all ain't making it easy, friends. Yeah, man. Just Friday alone, all right? The news dump. It was like a news dump trucks. Just they kept coming. They just kept coming <laughs> and <laughs> dumping the news. Just yeah. dumping it. A landfill of news. <laughs> Trash what? news. A, la a burning landfill. Landfill of news <laughs> pretty much describes what it feels like. Yeah, okay, the Cohen tapes. Cohen tapes. Secret tapes. More Recording tapes, Trump. Parade. What? We'll be talking about it later this morning. Absolutely. Uh, James Gunn. Whoo! That was a conversation. Disney letting them go? That's just that. There's God. that. And who knew what and who knew when and how did it get? It was just, a, I was like, wait, he tweeted the search thing himself. I was literally, we were in our hotel getting ready for our panel and I was just like, I'm gonna go relax a bit. And then I'm looking at Twitter, I'm like, Isaac! <laughs> that screenshot was kind of amazing. He literally was going to, he was trying to search his own tweets mm -hmm. and he accidentally tweeted it mm -hmm. all out. Yeah. Um, but listen, I'm. it's gonna be interesting to see how this plays out for Disney. Yeah, um, I, I will say 2018 keeps revealing new ways to fuck up. Because I didn't, I was like, you tweeted the, the thing you were searching for as you were trying to delete. <laughs> yeah, wow. It was a lot. But that's just scratching the surface of all the news that was happening this weekend and we're gonna get into all sorts of it. So but much. why don't you let us know, all right? Yeah. Just take a moment, mm -hmm. use the hashtag AM to DM. Let us know which story kind of commanded your focus this weekend, because girl, there was a lot. Yeah, I trust and believe I missed something. <laughs> Just at least one story, at least one story. Well then, y'all opened that damn sarcophagus and unleashed a plague of a new R. Kelly song. Mm. Just, just came out, girl, mm. with the locusts and the... Just Oh my goodness. This morning. No one asked for that. Ugh. No one asked for it. DT, you tweeted this, um, and I'm feeling you on it. When you see R. Kelly trending and thought they finally locked him up, instead he made a 20 minute song. Just smack the table like Denzel. I wanna be very clear. All right, I believe it is a 19 minute song because numbers are important. Yeah, that's right. It's, <laughs> it's, it's real fucked up. It's real fucked up. Uh, Another morning. And R. Kelly is eating up the timeline. So we're gonna talk about that real quick. I just yeah. wanna share some of these lyrics. I admit I fuck with all the ladies. That's both older and young ladies. Ladies, yeah. But tell me how they call it pedophilia because that shit is crazy, crazy. Yeah, it is crazy, you freak. I'm sorry. 19 <laughs> minutes. This is wild. I don't want a 19 minute song from anyone who is not a uh, uh, prince, frankly, uh, Beyonce, you know, people like doing art. 19 minutes of him being. And it's titled, I admit it. Mm -hmm. Will you, let me, I do, I want to ask you this genuinely. Mm -hmm. Will you listen to Absolutely it? Absolutely not. I, I'm going to read the lyrics. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I, I, there is nothing, there is nothing I want to hear from R. Kelly unless he is sitting on the stand at his own trial. Other lyrics you may have your opinions entitled to your opinions. I'm pretty sure it wasn't opinions. That's reporting, friend. It was reporting. People are on the record. And then we've got the president uh, just swinging at Iran, just taking taking shots. Just out here wild. And I've got to say, listen, you know, we're all developing a relationship, coming to terms with what it means to have the president of the United States be Donald Trump and tweeting the way he tweets. Mm. Um, I'll tell you this, though. 
when he tweets in all caps, it actually it had me shook. It's a little. <laughs> you're like you, you're used to about seven tweets before seven a.m. I'm used to the threads, all that, all caps. Okay. But the all caps. All right. Well, that brings us to this tweet from Scott Newmeyer. You all know Donald Trump had to go on this tweet binge this morning because he'll be busy watching Shark Week the rest of the day, <laughs> right? Which I think that's a valid point. He's trying to just get it all out of the way because we know he hates sharks. He hates sharks. But he loves Shark Week. Yeah, which is a weird kind of dynamic and, you know, I don't have a psychology degree. But I'll say this. <laughs> I hope, and shout out Discovery Channel panel, this is like the 30th. Thirtieth Shark Week. I was very surprised by this. It's the thirtieth anniversary it's been going of Shark Week. They've been nineteen eighty-seven. Can you believe that? That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Shark Week's almost a millennial. Anyway, sorry. Um, here's the thing. <laughs> I want the Discovery Channel to pair with Stormy Daniels. Mm, mm, they should really do This is a free mm. idea, y'all. And, and they announce a new specimen of shark, a new species that has been discovered. And it could be called, like, the Stormy Helsinki shark. <laughs> the rare Stormy Helsinki shark. And I want them to tweet it out. I want them to do a whole promo. And it would just have the president just... Because he would be watching. He'd be glued to a screen. That said, I'm free kind idea. of glad you're not a zoologist. I'm glad you're not. <laughs> yeah, I'd be naming all kinds of... Anyway, anyway let's live from the district because honestly the president does have us a little nervous we're going to talk to our white house correspondent here at buzzfeed news tarini party tarini good morning good morning can you guys hear me we can we can okay so uh tarini i have some awesome. news to break to you a new species of shark has been discovered off the course off the coast of uh mar-a-lago uh, and it's known as the helsinki stormy shark anyway no what are your thoughts <laughs> on shark week <laughs> So I can't say I planned on watching it, but if that kind of shark exists on Shark Week, I will definitely tune in. Okay, <laughs> news you can use. Just Carla. for the record, I want to be clear to those viewers just joining us, that is not a real shark. Yes, it is. Zaid is not a zoologist. Super real. Here's a tweet from John Darnell. <laughs> Good morning. The president is threatening Iran in the hopes that you'll all stop covering the way he disgraced himself and the country in Helsinki and what that disgrace means. Must we take this bait every damn time. Seen a lot of tweets making this similar point, Torini, and Helsinki was, and it's hard to believe, only a week ago. A week ago. <laughs> that said, it is hard to ignore the president of the United States threatening a foreign country in all caps. So what do we make of this? Right, so this is the president of the country. This is the commander-in-chief tweeting in all caps, threatening Iran. And so, you know, I understand people's concerns about getting too distracted, but I have, I have faith in the media and the general public to be able to keep up with one big story and then another, you know, sort of big story coming via Twitter. I think we're, we're getting used to this. We know how to keep up with, with the news, or at least try to. Yeah. Look at that, Torini's like, We've been working out. I like we're, it. We're ready. Serena's like, I can double now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> we contain multitudes. Torini, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. The FBI stated in 2016 that it believed former Trump campaign aide Carter Page had been collaborating and conspiring with the Russian government. Newly released documents reveal. Okay, so Torini, it has certainly uh, been a while uh, since we last talked about Carter Page. Um, how does this news shape the story of the relationship as we now know it, between Page and the Trump campaign. 
Right. So we know that Carter Page was a foreign policy advisor to the campaign, and these documents show that he uh, sort of got the interest of the FBI in 2016. Obviously, this was while the election was going on. And although these documents are heavily redacted, what we're seeing from them is uh, that the FBI believed that Carter Page had contact with Russian officials and uh, even Russian intelligence officials. So this is, you know, more than 400 pages of them laying out their case to get, uh, you know, the appropriate surveillance uh, abilities to be able to keep an eye on Carter Page. Uh, so has Carter Page actually been charged with anything? He has not been charged with anything. And, you know, even though they laid out this case, they got uh, a renewal twice, he has not yet been charged with anything. And we're seeing this sort of play out now for, you know, almost two years. Okay. And, and Tarini, help me, if you can, connect the dots here. Uh, does this new development have anything to do with the dossier? Right. So one of the things mentioned in, in this uh, application that we saw uh, is, is that part of the reason why the, the FBI justified uh, in, the, in their application for a FISA was uh, the dossier. They, they mentioned Source 1, which is the author of the dossier, and cited his reporting and his uh, kind of beliefs in what was going on between Carter Page and Russian officials as a reason why they felt the need that they needed to keep an eye on, on Carter Page. Now, this is something that the president and Republicans uh, have jumped on and pointed out that, uh, you know, FBI used this dossier to uh, get what they needed in terms of uh, the surveillance. But actually, it's, you know, a 400-page document that cites many different things that, that are redacted, including the dossier just being one of them. All right. Now, you said that uh, a lot of it is redacted. You keep saying that. But why? I've got to ask, why was it released? So this is actually a huge deal that it was released in the first place. Um, this was released as part of a FOIA lawsuit by media outlets, and the Department of Justice decided to release it. This is the first time in, I think, 40 years that we're seeing uh, actually seeing a FISA application, even though it is redacted. So it is a pretty big deal that this came out, you know, in the first place. Um, and but obviously, you know, there's so much of it is redacted that it's hard to get a better sense of why this happened. Okay. All right. Well, listen, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. In case you missed it, Michael Cohen reportedly taped Trump talking about paying off a Playboy model who said she had an affair with him. Tarini, this was, again, one of those later Friday news dumps that we saw so many of. So help catch us up. How important is this news in the big picture? Mm. Right. So this was one of the stories dropping on a Friday just to make sure that everyone's still paying attention. Uh, so we saw this story from The New York Times come out saying that uh, Michael Cohen, two months before the 2016 election, um, taped a conversation with the president talking about payments to a former Playboy model. Now, this is Karen McDougal, McDougal not Stormy Daniels, uh, just so that we're clear here. Uh, and it is very interesting because, um, you know, it, the case for against Michael Cohen has part of it has been figuring out if any campaign finance laws were violated. And this audio coming two months before the election seems to suggest that there might be something there. So, um, you know, the, the New York Times reported the existence of this audio. We obviously have not heard this audio, although I'm sure many people would want to listen to it. Um, and so we'll see how this plays out in the next few weeks. Right. Yeah. I guess turning this is my question at this point. Point, do we know why Cohen was recording conversations with Trump? I mean, like, he was, as I understand it, right, like, not just Trump's, like, lawyer, not just any lawyer, seemingly, like, Trump's fixer, such a dependable person in that 
organization that is definitely not a mafia. So why would Cohen be recording it? Yeah, so I think he, the way it's been described uh, over the last few months is that he had this habit of recording people. It's unclear why he did this, but he definitely had, uh, you know, as part of the raid uh, into his office, uh, uh, several tapes were discovered, and this is just one of them. And so he had this habit of, of making these recordings, which, uh, you know, if you're a lawyer, I, I'm not sure how common that is, especially if you are recording your own client. And the president has definitely taken issue with that. He tweeted this this weekend that calling it illegal, um, you know, we know that based on recording laws in New York, uh, New York State, it's a, it's one party consent. So in that sense, it's not illegal. It's unclear what the president is referring to. But obviously, he is not happy about the New York Times story and the existence of this tape. Mm. All right. So the FBI has this tape. Um, it's maybe illegal in the state of New York that he recorded this tape. Um, is there actually any issue or legal issue with the payment? So that's where the campaign finance stuff comes in here. There's concern that because this payment happened two months before the 2016 election and was meant to essentially silence um, Karen McDougal and then the separate Stormy Daniels payment, that this was in part an effort to keep them silenced because they were obviously trying to win a presidential election and they thought that uh, this revelation would hurt their chances of winning. So if that is the case, if, if prosecutors can make that argument, then they would say that this was a campaign finance violation because it was not reported at all as, you know, a, a payment related to the campaign in any way. Okay. And I also just wanted to ask, is this just the beginning of uh, what we will see, like, in terms of revelations from the FBI raid earlier this year? Like, is it going to be like, we'll just kind of keep having these bombs kind of come out? That's what it seems like. And, you know, especially related to the Cohen case, we know that they, they seized so many documents and recordings. And, uh, you know, he did work for the president for many years. So it, it seems like there is clearly um, an opening here for, for many of these to trickle out uh, over the next few months. Over the next few months. All right. Well, Tarini, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks, guys. Whew. Let me tell I just want to make this promise to you right now. I am not recording any of our conversations. I am not oh. recording any of my con- <laughs> our conversations. Yeah. What about you? Yeah. Uh, okay, well, that makes me very uncomfortable. <laughs> Listen, uh, guys, I know we had a little bit of technical yeah. difficulties yeah. there at the beginning, but we are back, back, back. It was a bit of a Monday morning. We're going to come back with fire tweets. Welcome back. Uh, we were talking about R. Kelly's 19-minute song that he just dropped this uh, morning titled I Admit It and I'm Just Mia. You tweeted, is that song the audio version of OJ's book? <laughs> I feel like there's just a yes. lot of bloops this morning. <laughs> a lot of looks directly at camera. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, I had nothing to offer. That no, was really good. Good tweet. Good tweet. <laughs> Thank you for that, girl. All right. Uh, this tweet comes from Small Potatoes. Podcast idea. I finally watch and review all of the movies I pretended to have seen when I was dating a film dude. <laughs> I like it. I'll say this. I follow this because that tweet blew up. Mm-hmm. And then she responded to, I really wished my ex, who this was about, could see this tweet, but he blocked me for no reason two years ago. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, broken. Right. Well, that's 2017. You tweeted, so do your tattoos have any meaning? 
Yes, they do. And the meaning is that I am cool. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I agree with this tweet very much. One of my favorite. I am a badass. <laughs> I am super cool. I'm a good guy. You might want to get to know me. One of my favorite things about being Isaac's best friend is that I get to see the moment when people, you know, start talking to Isaac about your tattoos. And my favorite thing is that people always ask, how many do you have? And you don't know. I think I <laughs> It's been a while since I counted. 20? And I also love that you haven't just like made it a, an item on your to-do list or something. Just count the damn thing. Maybe. I mean, now that you've called me out on the show, maybe I'll do that. You get asked it a lot. Anyway, this, is, this tweet comes from Allison. All right, Allison. I love being in a restaurant when they change the lighting from lunch to horny. <laughs> yes, like, woo, move. Just, just dim those lights. Uh, is it time for sandwiches or is it time for kisses? <laughs> Jordan Morris, you tweeted, I do actually think video games influence our real world behavior. For instance, every time I see a bunch of ceramic pots, I stop what I'm doing to destroy them. <laughs> oh, man. I'm playing a lot of Zelda Breath of the Wild right now, and I feel that. Really? You're just walking through a pottery bomb, being like, is there treasure in here? That's why you've been banned from Home Depot. It's true. Tweet of the day comes from Roy Wood Jr. It's a great one. I forgot, we're gonna hit it, okay. Still makes me laugh that pigeons and doves are basically the same bird, but doves get released at weddings, and <laughs> pigeons are labeled flying rats. Pigeons need a better PR team. <laughs> Good. Points is true. <laughs> Come on, guys, show a little love for pigeons. They're just city doves. They're just city doves. It's the, it's the pastel. People love a pastel, you know? <laughs> All right, friends, up next, it's still a good morning. We have so much to talk about. Libraries, mm -hmm. the New York Daily News, mm -hmm. Buffy. A lot. <laughs> Rage. Welcome back. Isaac's just like looking at me and shimmying over here, by the way. Um, here's a tweet from Prophetisa, because we are having a morning, y'all. Uh, I am a badass, Isaac says, and then proves it by freeze-framing the moment for 30 seconds. Here's the thing about live TV, friends. <laughs> oh, my God. You are so I'm much sorry. today. What? 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 You are so much today. Isaac knows that I am a perfectionist to an extent that like, I try to hide from people. Um, Doing a live show on Twitter, though, has forced me to change my relationship to perfection. Yeah, yeah we're just rolling with the punches this morning. Sometimes perfection is getting through it. I hope you can see what we're saying now. We're not just talking into the void. You want to try and freeze for a second? Mess with them? All right. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so much is happening. Let's talk about the New York Daily News. Absolutely. Because, wow, this is just a really shocking development. Uh, last night, former New York Daily News editor Jim Reach tweeted this. If you hate democracy and think local government should operate unchecked and in the dark, today is a good day for you. All right, and that tweet seemed to confirm the news that we all got this morning, that the New York Daily News is laying off 50% of its editorial staff. It should also be noted that Jim Rich has changed his Twitter on bio to read, just a guy sitting at home watching journalism being choked into extinction. Choked into extinction. There are fire tweets, mm -hmm. and then there are fire bios, and that's one of them. Uh, here's a tweet from Politico's Jimmy Vilkind. Uh, important column from Harry Siegel in the New York Daily News about the importance of local news. Comes as rumors swirl of pending staff cuts at the paper, which covers New York like no other. Harry Siegel, Daily Beast senior editor and columnist for the New York Daily News, joins us now. Good morning, Harry. 
morning. Really appreciate you being with us this morning. Harry, what can you tell us about these layoffs? I, I, can, I can tell you what you're seeing now, that, 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 that when a paper lays off, a New York newspaper, half of its people, it's real bad. And it's very, very hard to imagine how it's going to cover the, the city in any substantial way from here. Um, so, so I think there's about to be a lot of good journalists uh, on the market. Absolutely, absolutely, and I hope they land at newsrooms that appreciate them. I guess, Harry, here's the question, because this is not just a big deal for people who live in New York City. This is a big deal for everyone, because this is impacting newspapers across the country. So as an example, uh, what are some examples of, of the impact the Daily News has had you know, on local government here in New York? Like, What are we going to be missing out on? So the example that's come up a lot recently is Greg's Greg Smith's reporting from the NYCHA projects and about the, the kids who got poisoned by lead paint there, some of them under this mayor, de Blasio's watch. Uh, I mean, basically, federal prosecutors got involved because of his reporting. Like, this mayor was forced to own up to this and say this is going to be his crusade and he's going to do better strictly because of this reporting. Um, the news do, do, does a lot of that, and, and some of them are huge impact stories. Some of them, like, the Sunday cover this week was this incredible piece about this mentally ill guy who they just lost when they let him out of Rikers and his mother searching for him for months. And then the news finally managing to reconnect the family. That, 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 that's not a bigger story, but it's a hugely important one. And what happens when you have local reporters who are off, who know the place they're in, who are doing, doing this work. And I, I think you can see this a little with Donald Trump. Things break down pretty quickly when you lose that. Uh, and, and you don't have just people there at, at boring community board meetings or whatever, holding people accountable and paying attention and trying to figure out the uh, the big stories. You can't just dip in and get those, which uh, people try to do sometimes. Uh, but you need people doing that, that, that daily steady work or, or, or this falls apart very, very fast. And yeah, you, and you see those stories kind of get fumbled by national outlets when they try and just dip in and take it. Uh, so that's that's some of the examples here in New York. But for a broader sense and, and, and the real focus of your column, why is local journalism so important? Because we all live in local places. Like, nobody, nobody lives in America, right? Mm. Uh, uh, you, you live in your suburb, or you live in Brooklyn, or you live in Denver, or wherever it is. And if there aren't people there covering and paying attention to the stuff that's happening there, uh, it, it gets screwy and corrupt and venal really, really fast. Not, not that everything is uh, copacetic and wonderful when you have it, but, but it's, like, it's like if the... the the, uh, the stuff in your stomach that helps you digest all goes away. It does not end well. Like, you need people yeah. showing up who care about the places they're physically in. And there's a market for that. There's money for that, just like there's always been. Um, there's just not that much. So, so, so a lot of places, and this could be the Daily News in some ways. It could even be uh, BuzzFeed in some ways, right? Everywhere you look, when you try to have a play where you need to grow, where you need to demonstrate that you're something bigger or faster that's scalable, uh, that's tech-oriented, that, that, that's going to get bought by someone else. You get into trouble. But you, you do local news by, 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 by showing up and talking about the people who are there, and there are people who want that and will pay for it, like always. Yeah. Yeah, it's a different kind of investment. So to that point, again, unfortunately, locals, I love that you're like, we're, you don't live in America, you live in your community. Uh, what can people do to support local journalism? Because again, like 50% of the editorial staff at the New York Daily News this morning, and that is a story people in all kinds of local communities all over America have unfortunately heard recently. So is there anything that we can do to save our local papers? You can buy the local papers. 
um, that that helps a lot. And subscribe. Um, you, you can find the outlets you love and 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 figure out what you can do for them. And they're in all these different models, right? So ProPublica does some terrific work in New York, and they're a nonprofit. They've got their own bigger money, but if you want to go give them some money, uh, support WNYC. Uh, buy the tablets, right? If, if you're reading this stuff and you're interested, uh, put your money just in these real direct ways where your mouth is. If you're looking at real local sites like like, like Brooklyner, for instance, you know, uh, uh, support them and put in those, those 50 bucks. This stuff is not that expensive, but it's not cheap. And it only works if people in communities invest in the uh, in the communities they're in. Hey, go out and do some of that reporting yourself if you can. You know, talk to those reporters. Like, like, that's how this works. Um, and, and if everyone checks out, it does, in fact, break down. Yeah. All right. And Harry, this morning, you know, we're talking about local journalism, but you yourself right now are reporting from a hospital. Do you want to tell us what story you're chasing down? <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm a patient uh, in the hospital. I will tell you that the last time I was a patient in this hospital um, was right after uh, was right after Sahid Vassell was shot, uh, which was a, a very big New York story uh, uh this mentally disturbed guy was holding a pipe and these police jumped out and shot him we still don't have those police officers names by the way four months later wow. which is very disturbing the sort of thing you need local journalists to hold people to account for but i ended up in the er while the police were there and separate from the hospital they brought him to talking about this and covering it up i'm here now just because my leg is messed up um, and it, it seems like a, a sort of a fitting metaphor for the state of journalism right now, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, keep the door open. It sounds like you'll get another scoop. Just listen to people walk by. Harry, feel better. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. That is dedication. Wow. Join him from the hospital. That's even, and what a great example, right? He's mm -hmm. saying, like, a local reporter, he remembers four months have gone by and we don't have the names of these police officers. And again, that's an example. Like, people down on the streets hold on and have that memory that maybe larger institutions don't. Mm -hmm. So, man, shout out to our local journalist. Well, over the weekend, uh, you probably saw a few or a lot of tweets. We're talking about a lot of local stories. <laughs> yeah. uh, a lot of tweets about public libraries and why they're so important. Yeah, exactly. Local journalists, Listen. now we're going to shout out local public libraries. Uh, the conversation was kicked off by an article published in Forbes magazine by an economics professor at LIU Post. Amazon should replace local libraries to save taxpayers money. That idea is trash mm -hmm. uh, and not helpful, productive, or insightful, even for people who want privatized libraries. But it did inspire this great threat from our next guest, Sari Jarrell Johnson, uh, who joins us now. And this is just one of those tweets. I'm a librarian, and this is actually the worst fucking idea ever. Libraries uh, by Amazon would eliminate the most important function libraries have as a socialized daytime service to cash poor and working class people left by left behind by digital advances. And Saray. Yeah, Saray joins us now. Saray, good morning. Good morning. You describe public libraries as a stopgap measure where other social services end. For certain economics professors who <laughs> just don't get it. Can you explain what you mean? Absolutely. So uh, where the library is often thought of as sort of a book warehouse, um, actually at this point, most public libraries are providing GED programs, uh, re-entry services, daytime services to homeless people, job seekers. Um, we're often a first site for people to get information. Um, and uh, 
all around the country, we can find uh, public libraries being incredibly responsive very quickly to public needs. Um, just today, I was looking at a public library in West Virginia whose entire landing page um, is about the opioid academic, uh, epidemic. Um, I worked at a special public library, the AIDS Library of Philadelphia Fight, um, for two and a half years. And we were people's first stop when they were being diagnosed with HIV um, to learn about um, having HIV and uh, create connections. So that's really a lot of what libraries do. And um, in many ways, um, we do better than anyone else at this moment. Okay, and you know, listen, Saray, admittedly, I need to get a library card. I don't have a library card, but I've been inspired uh, by this conversation to do that on my own. But I guess my question would be for people who, for people who, Isaac has given me a look, Saray, ignore him. Uh, for people who, you know, aren't keyed into the fact that public libraries are seemingly constantly under siege, what are some of the threats public libraries are facing, aside from terrible op-eds by economics professors? I think that the biggest problem that public libraries face is underfunding and that people don't care about the people we serve, right? Um, after that tweet came out, I was most surprised by how many people think that homeless people don't deserve to learn hmm. and how many people think that homeless people don't work and what the misconceptions are about folks who use the library during the day, right? Um, and that like job seekers are somehow lazy. Um, and what that really means for the state of the country, right? Like you can't in one uh, case talk about the white working class and care about the white working class, which is not really a thing. Um, and you don't care about uh, people who come to the libraries or homeless people or people who are living with addiction, right? Um, and so I think that um, underfunding and lack of caring um, are the biggest threats. Um, but at the same time, libraries and librarians are very resilient, right? We're a very um, efficient service. And um, even um, in New York, we can see that even uh, with flat funding or slight increases or sometimes decreases, um, uh, usership is up and continues to go up. So um, even with those threats, uh, librarians and libraries continue to make a way um, to serve populations that are overlooked by other social services. Yeah, libraries still continue to thrive. Mm. Saray, I wanted to ask, what would you say to the Forbes editors that decided to publish this piece? So as a writer and a librarian, um, I just think that it's it's embarrassing. This is not even the first time that Panos uh, Mordukudis has published something that's just not very well researched. He also had a piece about how uh, Filipinos uh, are better under Duarte um, and uh, all kinds of things. So I think that uh, maybe vet the people who you allow to be op-ed contributors um, so as to avoid embarrassment. That seems basic. Totally. That seems basic. basic. Hello, and also like let Saray write <laughs> for you. Well, Saray, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. And again, I know you have a forthcoming poetry collection from Nightboat Books. I do. Out next yes. year. I met Saray when I was a writer in residence at Columbia University. So it's just wonderful to see this other side of your brilliance. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good day. Of course. You too. All right, well, let's take it to the timeline. What's something you love or really appreciate about your local library? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM, AM to I miss Mrs. Whipple, my old librarian, yeah. AM to public libraries forever. I love it. And we already have a couple of tweets here. Um, one from Mrs. Smith. People tend to forget that large portions of the country still don't have reliable internet access, and the library provides that. Um, Nichelle, you said, my local public library provides free lunches to kids all summer. 
summer. Just because you perhaps aren't dependent on libraries does not mean they aren't essential. But do believe I'm going to make Saeed get his library card. card. I'm it gets you into museums here in New York. That's it's true. amazing. I'm excited key. about that. It's a learning and love. All right. <laughs> all right. All right. Do you have a driver's license? I'm another day. Another day. Anyway, anyway here's a tweet uh, that we're really excited to discuss. It had people all up in their feelings because, whoo, big news. Buffy the Vampire Slayer series reboot with black lead in the works from Monica Owusi Breen and Joss Whedon. Sure. Ooh, all right. Sure. Justin Centric was certainly excited. He tweeted, this is the best news in all of history. And you know he's excited because it's really hard to format a tweet. Yeah, that, he, he took the time. He took Here's the, the thing, time. though. Here's the thing, because listen, there is a large body of research. <laughs> I would argue a cottage industry of opinions about Buffy because we've lived and loved it a long time. This is what Angelica Jade Bastion had to say. She's at Vulture. Hollywood, stop doing lazy gender and race bent reboots and shit. It isn't progress. It's insulting. As if black people can't lead popular works with their own mythology. Man. Sharp point, Angelica. And this conversation, let me say, is coming at a very important time because Saeed himself <laughs> has just become a Buffy stan. You <laughs> tweeted, I'm watching season five of Buffy when she said, you're beneath me to Spike. I gasped and almost burst into tears. Ice cold. Ice cold. And you literally just live tweeted Buffy yesterday. Yeah, so yeah. I did. A few years ago, I watched the first four seasons. I had the hashtag late Buffy. You can find those tweets. Now I'm using like late Buffy S5, so people know I'm on season five and don't spoil things. Because you're even later than you were I the am first time. So late, y'all. CP time for Buffy. Anyway, I love it. Uh, there's so many things about the show that are great, of course, but some things I've focused in on are the unexpected relationships. Mm. Spike, I adore because he's hot, but. And Saeed <laughs> loves problematic black, uh, white men? Yeah, yeah, well, well, both. Uh, but when we, when the robot, we're gonna set that aside. He needs help. But, but, um, I think the way Spike relates to Don mm. and is um, very empathetic with her in an unexpected way, and his relationship with Joyce is actually very touching, mm. and he connects to those two characters in a way that no one else on the show does, and so, Imagine how I felt when I got to the body, y'all. <laughs> For a while, I actually couldn't even cry until I got to Anya's beautiful speech. Beautiful speech, because I was so taken aback. As someone who lost a mother, you know, very short notice in my 20s, um, I can tell you that The Body, I think, is the best episode of television I've ever seen. Um, that it does a lot, but it captures the first few hours of grief. Maybe before you even know it's grief, right? You just, you're stunned, right? You don't even know what to refer to The Body as. The details is just wow. So, And we, we were talking about it this weekend, and that, to be honest, yeah. It was one of those things where I was like, yeah. oh, do I warn him that that's coming? And I decided not to. Thank you for your DMs. Thank you. My, I have all kinds of guides on Twitter working me through it. And and, <laughs> and he's going to keep watching oh, yeah. it. He's going to keep live tweeting it. But I do need to ask you, yeah. what do you think of this idea of making a reboot? Because hmm. Angelica has a good point. And mm -hmm. I have to, I'm not an expert on this, which is part, perhaps why it's so fun for people to watch me live tweet. Because I don't know what I'm getting into. Um, I wouldn't mind a well-produced well-produced uh, reboot that that's like not a new Buffy, like a new Slayer. Like mm -hmm. I think those characters and those stories are very, I don't want to see that story told in a new way, but it's, you know, a new Slayer is born every generation. So I'd like to see a new Slayer, you know, in Oakland, Played by Solange, because oh, we Solange. know she can kick ass. Uh, you know, I think that could, I could work I can with see that. that. I will say this. Uh, Justin, who was so excited about mm. it, he, uh, as this discussion kind of heated up on the timeline, he also tweeted, don't forget, 
Buffy itself, the TV series everybody loves, mm -hmm. is a remake of Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie, oh. which everybody didn't totally love. Okay. So we're already talking about remakes of remakes. Like so maybe they could do a remake that actually has the character still, but is uh, interesting and smart. We'll um, but we'll we want to hear from you, Twitter. Let's help Hollywood out and do some dream casting. Who would you want to see play Buffy? If they decide to go that route, Saeed was just saying Solange. What about Spike, Xander, <laughs> Nigel? Who do you want to see play Willow? <laughs> Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM AM to uh, what are those? Spike say? Daddy. No, not not Spike Daddy. <laughs> not Spike Daddy. Uh, you know, stakes. Um, stakes. stakes. AM to stakes. stakes. I'll say this for new characters: Tom Hardy playing a vampire. <laughs> That's, it's supposed to be. Black. You get it. Oh God. You get All it. right. Not the lead, yeah. but a vampire. <laughs> get it. Anyway, up next, the wonderful Chantal is here, and she's going to talk about the new season of Orange is the New Black. Oh, ooh, okay, I have questions. So he's just, just like, put Tom Hardy in everything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Welcome back. Orange is the New Black is coming back for a sixth season and loyal fans are great gearing up for its return. Lala, you tweeted, once the new season of Orange is the New Black comes out, I'm never coming out of my room. Catherine Van Dock, a TV writer for Vulture, wrote about why this latest season was aimless but still compelling. She joins me now. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So aimless but still compelling, can you explain why this show gets this type of character characterization? Yeah, um, it's a show that has these fantastic characters. It often has these really remarkable story beats that sort of sneak up on you. You don't see them coming. You think what you're watching is funny and light and then it'll turn a corner and suddenly you're in this really surprising, fascinating place. On the other hand, the episodes are very, very long and about half the time those stories don't actually go anywhere. And so you get a sense that Sometimes the plots just peter out into nothing and don't resolve in any way that makes you feel like they were a worthwhile way to spend your time. But you don't know which of the plots are going to be the ones that uh, are compelling and which are the ones that are sort of going to disappear into nothingness. Uh, so it leaves that mystery of what's going to happen. So yeah. up until now, the inmates have been in Litchfield's minimum security facility. And now for the first time, Orange is the New Black is taking place almost entirely inside a maximum security facility. How does the show execute this transition? Very suddenly and with almost no transition. <laughs> so the end, the end of the previous season is the resolution of this riot that's taken place in the minimum security prison. And so it begins the new season in, in maximum security. And we really don't get any of the transition stuff. All we get is our, our new characters suddenly having to find themselves where they begin in solitary and then slowly move into other places in the in the prison um, and so a lot of the season is about them attempting to adjust to their new surroundings mm, adjusting to the new environment so are we introduced to any new characters this season 
Yes, there are uh, several new characters. There are also several characters who have been in previous seasons of the show who don't get moved to this Max facility. They go somewhere else, and so we don't really see them again. So it's an attempt for the show to winnow out some of the minor characters who they didn't have much to say about anymore, and then there's space to introduce new characters. Um, the two biggest uh, are uh, Carol and Barb, who um, one of them is played by Mackenzie Phillips, who you may know from the original uh, uh, One Day at a Time. Uh, they play two older sisters who run feuding cell blocks of the prison. And their feud, their sort of rivalry, is the framework for most of the storytelling in that, in that season. Wow, really looking forward to meeting these new characters. So, spoiler alert, the death of Poussey sparked a huge turning point in the show, and we saw the messaging change a lot to reflect current events and social issues. How does that continue into this new season? It's something that's it's really tricky because they have these characters. They are obviously in a prison where they don't have a lot of access to the outside world, and so the way that social justice issues enters Orange is the New Black is sort of unevenly and in these little fits and spurts from the outside. So one of the characters, one of the big plots of the season is that characters have to, are being prosecuted for the events of the, of the riot in the previous season. And one of the characters becomes a figurehead for a Black Lives Matter movement as she is trying to grapple with these new charges against her because of the riot. Um, Toward the end of the season, you also start to get some immigration-related content, um, and things like um, ICE and deportation start to appear. Also, they're really touching on current social issues going on today. So, what as much can, as they can. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that. What can fans look forward to the most this upcoming season? Was there a poignant moment that you saw that you're like, I can't wait for people to see this? Yeah, I think one of the things that the show does really well is to take a minor character who you may not have felt a particular attachment to or affection for and suddenly can invest a lot of time in that character and they become well-developed in a way that you hadn't. So there's a character named Blanca and she's been a pretty minor character um, in previous seasons. She has this really big unruly hair and that's kind of the only thing that you see about her often. And she gets much more of her own story this season and it's been it's been really interesting to watch them develop her well we are really looking forward to seeing how this season unfolds Catherine, thank you so much for joining me thanks for having me don't go away we'll be right back with more am to dm katie natopoulos tweeted I tried being a 10-year-old on my phone by turning on all of the settings that block any app for people over age 12. I'm a child genius. Joining me to talk about her experiment, it's genius child herself, <laughs> Katie Natopoulos, also known as a BuzzFeed News senior editor. But I think we all know you best as a child genius. I like to think of myself as a child genius. It took me to my full adulthood to really become a child genius. Exactly, exactly. So what exactly was your experiment? Um, so I wanted to try what it was like using my phone as a child. So I basically turned on all the parental control uh, settings on my phone. Um, and <laughs> that, that was approximately me. So Exactly. 
Um, one of the ways that you do this, uh, it's sort of buried deep in your iPhone settings. Uh, there's something called restrictions. And what you can do is you can go in and you set, presumably this would be an adult would set the passcode. You set up a separate passcode, different than your you know, unlock one. Um, and then you can do all these things like you can make it so you can't buy any movies on iTunes that are rated R or you can't listen to music from Apple Music that has uh, explicit lyrics or podcasts with explicit lyrics even. I guess lyrics, not you know, words. Um, but then one of the other features you can do is you can have, so none of your apps that you can use, uh, apps all have age ratings. So you can set it for the appropriate age ratings of the apps that you want. So I decided for my experiment, I would be 10 years old. So I limited myself only to apps that were rated ages four plus and ages nine plus. And I couldn't have any of the 12 plus ones or the 17 plus, which it's weird. Like some apps you wouldn't expect, like Chrome, for example, the browser is 17 plus. So I couldn't use Chrome. I couldn't use uh, Gmail, um, apps like that. But can you use Safari? You can use Safari. Is that just like an Apple conspiracy against Google? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> I'll let you conclude your own thoughts about that. There is an option also in these uh, settings that you can restrict certain uh, websites. So you can either do it by like specific URL or just like limit adult content, which I'm not totally sure what that means. Um, but yeah, so I couldn't use uh, any social media really, partly because as part of the experiment, I was saying, all right, well, if I'm only 10, then I'm not even allowed to sign up for Twitter or Facebook, even though like I maybe could have used those. So it was a sort of nice week of not using social media or email or kind of anything on my phone other than I played a lot of solitaire. Hmm. All right, so how do the app stores decide these ratings for the apps because one of the things I found really interesting about your piece is I know that there is that little ages like seven plus on the apps mm -hmm. but I never thought about that before. So it's less complicated than you might think. Um, basically any app when it gets sent to the app store if you make your own app um, you have to go through a bunch of sort of like approval processes and one of them is you fill out this questionnaire about how much adult content is on your app and it includes a lot of weird things not just like violence or nudity but also weird things like are there depictions of tobacco use for example like they you know I guess you don't want a cool app about like smoke cigarettes for kids. Um, other things like, is there simulated gambling? And a lot of these are sort of, you can tell they're designed a little bit more for a video game kind of app, and are maybe not really as relevant to a you know productivity app or a social media app. And what happens is there's all these really weird inconsistencies about the age ratings. So you get things like, American Express, for example, the app is rated four plus, but you have to be 18 to sign up for the, like to actually use the app. So it's sort of useless in terms of an age rating. Or you have other things like Twitter is rated 17 plus because it doesn't filter nudity or adult content. Um, Facebook is 12 plus because you know, there's no nudity allowed on Facebook or Instagram. But you know, you can also you can be a teenager and sign up for Twitter. It's so it's it, there's sort of a disconnect there. So how effective are these parental controls? You know, like how easy would it be if you actually were a ten year old to circumvent this <laughs> <laughs> parental controls on your apps? So if you wanted to circum like they're actually pretty good in terms of like 
you probably couldn't cheat the parental controls if your parents set this up and wouldn't let you have any apps rated 17 plus. Um, because it does, it requires a passcode, and if you can't guess the passcode, then you're kind of, you're out of luck. Um, but I think that not that many parents use that as their exclusive means of dealing with their kids' um, devices. So I talked to a couple parents and also a couple experts who deal with like child digital safety. And basically, I mean, the parents all have different methods. So I talked to some parents uh, that there was, I thought this was actually kind of genius. They were like, oh, we just give my kid a flip phone. So that like we want, you know, my 10 year old, I want him to be able to call or text me, you know, if he's at school and he needs to get picked up or there's an emergency or something like that. But um, they don't want the kid just sitting there on YouTube all day long. Um, and what the experts have said is that uh, in terms of child safety, people used to be really worried about like, oh, I don't want my kid exposed to the internet. Like I don't want them to see all the nasty things on there. That's maybe less of a concern now because I think that people realize that what kids want to do is they just want to watch YouTube for like 18 hours a day. And so now the thing that they're really more, uh, they care about for parents is limiting the screen time that the kids have. Saying, I don't want you using your phone during school time. I don't want you on Instagram after bedtime. Um, so I think that's actually more what parents care about now is, is limiting the time. And there's gonna be a new feature on the iPhone coming out this fall that will actually let parents limit time. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's definitely the wild, wild west out there. So thank you, Katie, for diving into the mind of a 10-year-old <laughs> and helping us understand exactly what's out there. Anytime you need me to be a kid, I'm ready to do it. <laughs> Up next, I'm talking about the eighth anniversary of One Direction. So exciting. Today marks the eighth anniversary of the band One Direction, and here's a tweet honoring them. Supporting this group for now eight years is something I never imagined I'd be doing. Where has the time gone? I grew up with these boys and watched them develop their own careers. Proud is such an understatement. Hashtag eight years of One Direction. Well, joining me now is writer and One Direction enthusiast, Caitlin Tiffany. Caitlin, thank Hi. you so much for coming on. No problem. So, in 2016, you wrote a piece about how One Direction has remained the world's biggest band even after they went on a, quote, hiatus. So they've been on hiatus for three years and people are still standing them. So how have they stayed this popular? Yeah, so when I wrote that piece, it was at the end of 2016, um, and One Direction was still the highest paid band of the year on the Forbes list, despite having done nothing together for that entire year. Um, so what I was talking about was kind of like, leftover tour money and money from streaming but um one direction is also still like to this day like the third most popular musical group on tumblr um i think there's like a lot of ways to explain it but like one of them is that they really arrived on the scene at the perfect moment when teenagers were starting to use twitter um, and people were really interested in making gifs of them they were huge on vine i don't know if you've seen that one that's like, I'm not gonna do it, but if you, if you Google like, um, what the fuck is a chance when you get home? It's really good. Um, it's, it's great. Anyway, um, yeah, so they've kind of become like embedded in the fabric of these social platforms in a way that I think would be impossible to undo even if anybody was interested in trying. Um, yeah, they just exist there forever. They're part of the, the fabric of the internet. 
You brought up a really good point in your piece. You said that One Direction elected to belong to young women and be mocked by everybody else. So what do you mean by that? Um, I think as far as like the music that One Direction was making, it's not exactly what boy bands had done before. A lot of it's very like dad rocky. Um, and so they could have been that kind of band if they wanted to be. Um, but they, you know, they deliberately appealed to young women. They were like very welcoming towards female fans and like took them seriously and talked to them as if they were adults and you know like interfaced with them directly in ways that previous boy bands hadn't so it was kind of a combination of those two things that made them have a really loyal fan base and also those are the people that gave them their careers there would have been no one direction after they lost x factor if it wasn't for twitter yeah, for sure. And something that I've thought a lot about that you talked about as well is that fandoms made up of young girls are often dismissed as stupid or silly and the music is mocked and made fun of. But, you know, young men get behind fandoms all the time. Like, look at the entire sports world, you know, that's mm -hmm. the exact same thing in my opinion. So why do you think there is that disparity and what can we do to kind of, you know, take this a little bit more I don't know, seriously isn't the right word, but just with a little more respect. Uh, I think people have been trying. I think um, one example would be like the Rolling Stone cover story about Harry Styles when his solo album was coming out. Um, he very directly said like, um, young women know what they like and they, they are intelligent enough um, to discern what is good. And also um, they're super passionate and it's just like, you shouldn't dismiss people just for being really into something. Um, and that, that whole album review cycle was a really interesting time because it was a lot of older music critics being like, we have to take Harry Styles kind of seriously. He's making guitar music. Oh my God, I'm so surprised that this is what he's into. And it's like, well, you were doing your job paying attention to the most successful rock band in history you would have already known that that's what he's interested in. And it just was like very strange to watch those two worlds come together, but. Yeah, for sure. And like you said, Harry's had a solo career. I think all of the guys pretty much have had pretty successful solo careers so far, which I, for one, was actually surprised by. We really haven't seen that from a boy band, at least not like our generation boy bands. Uh, so do you think they'll ever get back together? The big question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of goodwill there still. I know in, there was a, a billboard profile of Niall that really um, touched my heart where he was like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm always almost missing airplanes now because I keep thinking that I'm waiting for like Louis to get back from the bathroom or something. <laughs> it's like really touching. Um, but I mean, their musical styles have diverged so much. Zayn is obviously like over it, never talking about it again. Um, and I don't really know, Louis is kind of like leaning into that reality. He's a new X Factor judge. He's only had a couple of songs. They've been disappointing. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't see them coming back together in like full swing. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe just for like one single or something. Yeah. 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 They definitely still love each other. Still lads, whatever. They're still lads. <laughs> I love it. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Up next, Isaac and Saeed read your tweets. Welcome back. C. Grace T, you tweeted, One Direction being eight years old makes me feel like a literal crypt keeper. Mm. I gotta say this, queer mermaid. Uh, <laughs> I was actually surprised that was only eight years. There's a part of me that's like, I feel like One Direction has been around for decades. R. Kelly has been manipulating and abusing <laughs> women 
nearly twice as long as One Direction has been around and still not in jail. So that's, mm. that's, that's the timeline I'm working with mm. here. But yeah, I guess, damn, life comes at you fast. Sure does. Anyway, mute R. Kelly, friends. <laughs> but, you know, Zane's still cute. Anyway, uh, we asked you about your love of libraries. It was really cool. I, the, the, I've been, it, just, you, they're different for different communities, so mm. you get to learn about what's great in different people's towns. And, and y'all have some really great tweets. Starcat15, ooh, I like it, Starcat15. You said, the smell of those books, the smell of knowledge. Okay, that's true in all libraries. I like it, though. <laughs> I do like how books smell. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. man. Yeah. Absolutely. The smell of books, the smell of knowledge. Mm. I feel like libraries themselves actually do smell differently, right? From from town to town, yeah. from place I to place. I wonder if there's like a fragrance you could get like this. I, would you want to smell like the smell of books? I guarantee you yeah. there's a perfume. Would you wear I that? Absolutely would wear that. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I'm going to say Quage. Picks <laughs> Maven, you said, <laughs> I worked in public libraries and higher ed libraries from age 14 until I graduated undergrad. Libraries are an amazing public resource. And if you don't know why, walk into any library and ask what services they offer. And that's absolutely true. They will list so many. I myself worked at a library for many years mm -hmm. when I was in college uh, to help me pay for my education. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love libraries and, um, and they do so much more. And I know there's a a lot of like, oh, they also offer this to the community, but they do so many other things, tech ed, so much stuff. It's amazing. Yeah, something I remember I read this actually a few months ago and I thought it was fascinating. It says a lot about the opioid crisis, but that a lot of librarians um, basically now have like a first responder status because they have to deal with overdoses, you know, and so it's just like they're just, I mean, and, 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 and like Saray said, like an incredibly efficient uh, class of workers mm -hmm. doing such important work that I think none of us like expect, like, oh, now I need to learn how to deal with an overdose, you know, you like, have wow. to go to school for years yeah. to become a librarian. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're supporting working poor, they're dealing with kids, they're dealing with us. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. Um, here's another one from It's Just Me. You said, during a recent heat wave in Montreal, libraries were a refuge for folks, some elderly and disabled without air conditioning. Libraries, libraries are cool and they keep you cool too. A life-saving service. Mm -hmm. Literally, that's an excellent point. Absolutely. Excellent point. And it gets into, again, our conversation that we had about local journalism, right? Mm -hmm. When you have people invest in the community, they're the people that are gonna know how to help their community, right? And the same is true of librarians. They're gonna know who's in the community, yep. who might, oh, you know what? Actually, I haven't seen so-and-so. They usually come in every week. It's a way uh, of, of, of building this local scene. Um, we asked for your feelings. Okay, switching gears now, though. <laughs> uh, for the Buffy reboot, A Queer Mermaid, you said, I wanna be excited about a Buffy reboot, but also, like, can't we get a series featuring black folks that hasn't already been done? Mm. We can make cool stories and myths and whatnot. True. I think that's a very, very good True. point. I mean, because we were talking about, right, maybe it'd be cool to see another Slayer, mm -hmm. but to the point Queer Mermaid's making, is like, just, like, just, tell another just story. do another story. Tell another story. Absolutely. And I'm okay. excited we got Marlon James, uh, his book coming out, I yeah, believe in that, February of next I, year. Truth be told, Queer Mermaid, or whoever said that last tweet, that mm -hmm. may actually be the next. Mm -hmm. I can see it. We, we've gotten some of the tea on that book, and y'all are going to love it. I love it. I will say, uh, not to keep looping back, but wasn't Niles kind of a librarian? Mm. And, and, and <laughs> librarians are important. Said Said finds the thread. Said finds it the thread. Took me a while, but we got there. Anyway, friends, uh, it's been quite a morning, uh, and I see it's still crazy out there on on, on the timeline. Stay safe. Hashtag mute R Kelly. Mute R Kelly's like trending at like oh, number all right, one or two. All now, right. so. 
deal with that. Anyway, uh, whew, thank you to all of our guests this morning. Uh, Tarini Party, Harry Siegel, Saray, uh, Saray, Jarrell Johnson, uh, Katie Natopoulos, Stephanie McNeil, Chantal Fallens, Catherine Van Arendonk, and Caitlin Tiffany. A lot and of names. I also Ooh. want to do a correction on myself. Jess Goodwin, you tweeted, it's Giles, not Nigel. How dare you? I apologize, Jess. It's been That's a little while me. since I've watched That's Buffy. That's on me. And I see English <laughs> guys as all the same. Amateur Buffy fan here. Before we go, though, congratulations <laughs> to BuzzFeed News Show Profile on its debut yesterday. It was absolutely incredible. If you haven't watched it yet, be sure to watch the first episode featuring Queer Eyes Jonathan Van Ness on Facebook. Watch. It was absolutely a fascinating conversation. Yeah, they, watching audience Jonathan talk is really fun. I just wanted to like go to dinner with them yeah. after. So it's what it felt like. That's what I want from all of my interviews, to be perfectly honest. So excited about Profile. Later this week, we have John Cho, mm. Kelly McDonald, mm. and Michael Arsenault. Ooh. I can't date Jesus. I've been hearing good stuff about his. I've a great book title. I yeah, can't it's really Jesus. good. Such a good book. Excited to talk to him. All right, friends. We got to get out there. Don't hurt nobody. Don't hurt nobody. Good luck.